the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work. But it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. I think it was Thoreau that said that, and I used to think about that all the time. And it just always stuck with me. Brandon Edgens. And I am... <clears throat> <Well. laughs> <laughs> Rough day, man. Rough start, everyone. <laughs> Usually that's, it's, only, it's only downhill from here. <clears throat> and I am Anson Mount. This is part two of our story about Tom McElroy. If you haven't heard part one, please go back and do so now. We'll wait. In this episode, we're going to get into Tom's career as a consultant for wilderness survival shows and living with indigenous peoples. But to start out, I wanted to recap a little bit about what motivated Tom to seek out a life of adventure in the first place. And it began with seeing how the American dream, as advertised, wasn't working for him. Did you, did you have a feeling like that? Does, isn't that kind of like a teenage thing for everyone or do you think some people just don't care and just accept the, the status quo the american dream idea yeah um i guess i'm still trying to figure out what that is mm -hmm. i think we all are um I, the immediate images that come to mind are white picket fence mm -hmm. solidly middle class mm -hmm. neighbors reaching across fences I, I you know um good life good family good job I, i'm not entirely sure that that hits the nail on the head. Uh, this isn't written down anywhere, but I think that we have a generalized idea of what our life as adults is supposed to entail. And those assumptions can be rather limiting. I, I would not have um, become an act. I wouldn't be where I am today if I had, um, if I'd just gone along with what was expected. Right. I think uh, to quote Kubrick, uh, criminals and artists have one thing in common. Both of them believe the rules do not apply to them. <laughs> but there is. I, I think anyone who goes into the arts, you know, as we did, I think I, I think we can understand where exactly where Tom is coming from, right? Uh, he's he chose a different kind of creative life, creating, um, really creating a life from scratch to see how far you can strip things down to their basics, right? Because all of the window dressing just seemed like nonsense mm -hmm. and pursuing it uh, again, as advertised as it is sold. Yeah. Leaves a lot of people unfulfilled and they never even question why they feel unfulfilled after spending their whole lives chasing it. It definitely seemed like people had reached the pinnacle of the American dream with the big house and the two and a half kids and a dog and the white picket fence and, and then kind of we're looking around and just being like really unhappy and spending all their money on, I did some landscaping in this super wealthy town where 
you know, I remember pulling up all the weeds in this lady's yard and it spent weeks there and she'd come by and like, did you get them by the roots, you know, and pull it all up. And so we finally pull up all the weeds in this spot and then she comes back and we're like, okay, well, what do you want to do with this, this space now that we've created this little garden area for you? And she's like, I don't know, like make it look natural. <laughs> it, was, it was natural you just spent four weeks i pulled up every route like now you want it to be look natural but it just seems like you know that you get caught in this mindset of like maybe it's keeping up the joneses or, or whatever it is but like it just didn't seem rational to me to spend so much money doing things like that you know like ripping up your yard and paying me tons of money to do so and then trying to make it look natural again i don't know it's just, it was just a one weird example of uh, things that struck me when I was a teenager of like, what are we doing here? Like, what is the goal? What is the point of all that? You know, like there's no there's no sense in it, you know, and it doesn't seem like the person's necessarily passionate about it. And if they were, they would be out there doing it themselves. When Tom first embarked on his life's journey to somehow live in the woods, there was no clear path for doing that. And I'm sure a lot of people thought he sounded kind of nuts. Like I would tell people like, what are you studying? I'm like, oh, I'm studying wilderness survival. And they would say, you know, what, like what in the world? And I'd have to explain, you know, oh, I basically study how to live in the, off the land. And so it definitely wasn't a thing that anybody would understand. And now it's a household term, which is incredible. Back in the nineties, most interest in primitive living was driven by back to earthers, soldiers of fortune and doomsday preppers. But that all changed. The reality TV show Survivor turned the subject into a game, an entertainment, and maybe a way to get famous? These shows were a mixed blessing for Tom. It's a good thing and a bad thing, the TV thing, because, you know, it's always fake and it's always done wrong. And, you know, you can tell they're just editing it to make it look right, you know, and so you hate it. But at the same time, if it inspires somebody out there to want to get close to nature, then it's a good thing. It's nice to see that, like, throughout the past... 20 years, it's really opened to the mainstream public so that, yes, it's still cheesy and canned and on TV and, and fake half the time, but it is inspiring little kids to be like, cool, I want to get out in nature more and I want to do those things. I want to make fires and weave baskets around a fire and find that sense of community that we used to have in tribes. And so I think maybe if it doesn't present it in the best light, it at least leads people to the opportunity to experience those things. I still teach kids classes um, and it's so cool to see these kids come out and kind of have an idea of what we're about to do. Um, and then they experience it for themselves and they go, wow, it was so cool. Like that was, you know, even more than what I thought it was going to be. And, and parents, if they ever tell me like, oh my God, my kid was more excited about that than playing video games. Like that's about the best I can ever get from them. Tom came to know the pros and cons of reality TV very well. As a media savvy, genuine survival expert, it was only a matter of time before those reality TV shows began recruiting Tom. Yeah, I consult for different shows where I basically, um, yeah, help, help script it, help, you know, um, figure out what in that area is good for survivalists that are going to be on TV to do that would make it interesting. Or I just kind of help prep. Um, I don't want to give it away too much, but you know, in these, these reality TV shows, it's not reality. And so, you know, when I have not worked for Bear Grylls, so I use him and his example, but when Bear is weaving a basket or something, you know, there's somebody behind the camera weaving it. They hand it to Bear. He talks about it. They tell him what to say. And then he hands it back and they, they, somebody else finishes the basket. Um, and so I've gotten some gigs like that. And 
and it's cool. I mean, it's really fun. It's creative. You get to get put together a TV show and it's in a way for me, I, I kind of like being behind the camera sometimes in those situations um, and let somebody else be the person in front of the camera. God, I hope Tom is okay with me saying this, but for as long as reality TV depends on drama, Tom will not have a big career in front of the camera. He's too calm, too rational, too competent. Who wants to watch someone competently do things in a calm manner? Well, I do. Take, for example, this moment from one of his self-produced YouTube videos. Personally, I love it. But the economics of television production will not tolerate so much screen time. As someone just enjoying themselves so much that they unconsciously make the basket they're weaving too big and too pretty. Okay, admittedly, I got a little carried away with this. It was just such a nice day sitting out here by the river and up in that meadow. Uh, and then I just kept going and made this thing much bigger than I needed it to be. Probably only gonna get about half full of clay when I get into this cave. But all I need to do now is fold down this rim. But as a consultant for reality TV, Tom is asked by producers to do such absurd things that he can no longer remember them all. The producer's coming to you saying, can you make a compass out of a fish? Oh, oh, that's right, God. I, I try to give people examples and I forget. Like some of the ridiculous requests was like, can you make a kite surfing board out of palm leaves and a kite out of palm leaves? And I'm like, what the f*** am I going to get a 30-pound palm leaf to fly up in the air? Uh, yeah, and so that's TV. And it's just constantly fighting against these like absolutely ridiculous requests. And I'm like, hey, can we... You're the creative guy. Can you come back down to Earth for a little bit and realize that like physics still apply? Didn't one of them ask you to make a compass out of a fish? He just said, hey, can you make us a fish compass? And he had it on this list of these wild ideas to make the show have that like, you know, what they call the water cooler moment, <laughs> where it's like, I need people on Monday to be talking about this at work. Um, and so he just would always have these crazy ideas and I'd give him cool ideas, but they were like, you know, based on reality and he didn't like that. And he just like, <laughs> well, how about we make like a fish compass? And I was like, uh, thinking like, okay, maybe he saw this on TV and I've never heard of it. Or he saw this on YouTube or, and I'm like, well, yeah, like, I mean, what is it? What's a fish? That sounds great. You know? And he's just like, oh, I, I don't know. Just, it just seems like something cool we could do. <laughs> I'm like, what the f is a fish compass and so i'm just thinking like what do you want me to like tie a string to a fish and it swims north and i follow it i don't i yeah but i just it was just um that was probably the hardest part of the job is just like sometimes i'm 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 stubborn that way where i'm just like you know what i'm very very good at what i do just leave me the f alone and i'm gonna do what i do um you know and i i don't you know and having somebody that has no idea anything about uh, primitive skills trying to come up with ideas is pretty frustrating so but it's also really funny you know i mean it, i knew i knew later i'd be laughing about it it can be funny and tom understands these producers are just seeking water cooler moments you know outrageous stuff for people to talk about the next day but people who take this stuff seriously as tom does they're put in a very awkward position by the success of people like bear grills I used to watch this show, Survivor Man. This time on Survivor Man, I'm headed to the top of the globe, Baffin Island. I'm gonna have to find my way back to this community seven days from now. Les Stroud was a very serious and very accomplished survivalist who made the show entirely on his own. And his show was well before Bear's show. But when Bear's show came out, 
you could see the impact on Les's show. He started doing slightly ridiculous things just to compete. That's the story I heard from like, you know, the small circles of survival people on the inside or whatever, was that eventually Les said, I am not doing what he does. You know, I'm not I'm not going to the extreme to show the ridiculous fake things that would probably get you killed. Cody Lundin did the same. He was on a TV show and he just said, you know what? You're telling me to jump in this frozen river to say that it's a good survival strategy and I won't do it because somebody's going to do it at home and they're going to die um, following my advice. And so they got rid of him. And and in a way, that's kind of what separated less from Bear is Bear was willing to be like, I will do the most ridiculous, asinine things on camera um, and make people believe that it's a good idea. And he got, you know, un- incredibly, incredibly famous for it and less um was less um you know less kind of drifted <laughs> off and and wasn't as um you know as, as looked up to as a survivalist and, and honestly like it just made for better tv and that's all they're looking for and i remember watching less on a show i didn't watch too many of his but he was up in the, the arctic and he talked about how the eskimos would poke a hole in the ice and wait for a seal for 18 hours to poke its, he- its head through to breathe through that little hole and he's talking about how he's just going to have to stand there for 18 hours and wait, and then he's going to stab a seal. And is to stand over this hole for a long time and wait for the seal to come. Like this. And you had people could stand for hours and hours and hours, perfectly still, waiting for a seal to come. You watch the clock go by, and it's about 15 minutes. After what seems like hours, my arms and legs are aching. I can't do this anymore. And he just gives up after 15 minutes. And it was like, it was a very real moment to show like, hey, like, you know, this isn't a talent acquired easily is to stand and stare at a hole for 18 hours and then spear an elephant or a seal. Um, And, you know, if it was bare, it was like they would have, you know, killed a seal and brought it in and have him, you know, have it dead under that hole and rigged it, you know, to make it look good. Um, whereas just less refused to totally be a fake, but it, it was boring. You know, it was honestly, it was just boring watching him do it and then realizing he didn't even, you know, have 15 minutes in him to do it. And so it just didn't make for good TV. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the Instagramification of, of survival teaching when, when, when people go into the woods and realize they're not being filmed <laughs> and that they'll quit, that they'll quit pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. You know, I've, I go, I've gone back and forth and I've been really pissed that like, you know, it became such an in thing that like everybody that learned how to do a bow drill, um, over a weekend course suddenly opened a school and they're expert survivalists on TV. And I mean, as somebody that's been consulting for TV shows where they have these expert survivalists come in, you know, they don't, they can't, they can't even make a fire with a lighter, you know, and it's, and I have to sneak in, turn the cameras off. I'll sneak in, light the fire for them and then back away. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, at times incredibly frustrating, but at the same time, I think, um, back in the day in the nineties, when I was learning this stuff to learn it, I would have to go into New York city to the museum of natural history with a notebook. And they had a, an amazing indigenous, um, people's display from all over the world. And I would just go with a notebook and, you know, every so often there'd be a basket or a trap or 
something and I would just sit there and draw exactly how that thing was made. Um, and I'd fill notebooks with it. But at the same time, it's like nowadays, if you want to learn like some some weave of, uh, you know, the, the Baca tribe and, and the Congo, you could just go onto YouTube and type it in and somebody's recorded it for you. And so the acceleration of learning nowadays is incredible. And like, I don't I don't I don't even know if my way was better. Like maybe I can pat myself on the back saying I worked for it, but like I probably would have learned a lot faster if I could have just looked those things up on YouTube and then done them. I think the problem with that is there's so many people like look at my, I put out YouTube videos um, and my Island survival video has probably like five or 6 million views. And for that particular class, I might get like 20 students a year to take that particular class out of the 5 million people that have done it. And so there's an, there's a, there's an attitude of like, Oh, I saw it on YouTube. Therefore I've experienced it and I can do it. And it's just like, Oh, that's not what I'm trying to, you know, I want you to get out in nature and I want you to try these things. I don't want you to just see it and then logically think you can do it because, you know, um, it's almost like a collection of, of the intellectual knowledge, but that isn't going to do nothing for you if you're actually lost in the woods. Watching survivor shows, watching cooking shows, watching uh, DIY stuff and going, I'm totally can do that now. Our brains on some level think by seeing and hearing it, we now kind of think that we've done it already and not quite ever having to go through the exercise of physically grappling with those realities. Yeah. I mean that in one of the videos I have probably the biggest criticism on that Island survival videos, my friend, Matt, that I do this week long survival thing with, um, on that video is he, he climbs up a coconut tree and pulls down like 30 coconuts for us to eat for the entire week and, and get water from and all that. And, and the biggest thing people comment on, they go like, oh, well, that's stupid. I can't do that. Like, what's the point? I can't possibly climb a coconut tree. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you can't make a bamboo fire either. And you can't spearfish and you can't dive down under the water and you can't <laughs> set this trap. And and but they see the bamboo fire and they go, oh, OK, I got that. I can do that. All right. They see the spearfishing. They're like, OK, I can do that. You know, and it's kind of like this, like they really think I'm like, you can't do any of these things without training. Like if you train for a year, you're going to be able to climb a coconut tree. Um, in the same way that if you train for a year, you're going to make a bamboo fire saw. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing where people think if they see it, they can do it. Um, and it's just not the case. Like that's the thing is people fail in survival all the time being like, Oh, I've done one bow drill fire in my life. I'm going to be able to get it in a situation where I'm lost and I don't have a knife and it's just, it's never going to happen. It was really instructive to watch you or Matt make a fire in minutes and, then now now do it yourself. That's the whole point of these classes uh, that you teach is like, okay, now do it yourself. And like, okay, oh, I see what's missing. Experience. You know, if you're doing a hand drill, when people are like, how do you do it? And I'm like, well, spin it really fast and push down. And it's like, well, how much do I push down and how fast do I spin it? It's like, well, it just feels right when you're doing it right. And it's like, so that point I can't convey is like, how do you do it so that you are doing it at the most energy efficient, optimal way of spinning that stick to get a fire and it's just only something you can gain by doing it a million times. For those at home who haven't tried this before, it is much harder than it looks. It's so frustrating. I thought I, I thought I had really like I was worried about how I was going to do for the rest of the trip because like on day two, I was pretty sure I'd like permanently damaged my shoulder <laughs> trying to get this thing going. <laughs> Watching an expert is the fastest way to learn anything. 
I was lucky to have Tom as my teacher for only a few days, but Tom has spent a lifetime learning from the true masters of primitive living. After studying survival for a long time in the U.S., um, I was able to, I was fortunate enough that there was a lot of old Native American guys that would um, come to the survival school that we were at, not to take classes or anything like that. They were just welcome to show up and, and be the Native elders that were around. And so one of them was a guy that was Sitting Bull's great, great, great grandson. Um, and his name was Gilbert Walking Bull. And so he was a 75 or 80 year old uh, Lakota medicine man. And he would run sweat lodges that we would join. And another guy was Jake Swamp and he was the chief of the Iroquois nation. Um, and anyway, random, random old guys like that. Um, and so I had a lot of experience with like indigenous cultures throughout the U S and I started to realize like how many of these skills, you know, pretty much all of them were preserved only because indigenous people kept them alive. And I started to realize that like the best survivalists in the world are definitely not middle-aged white guys on TV. Um, not by a long shot, it was the indigenous, you know, 300 million indigenous people that are still living on the planet. And so to kind of further study um, survival, I, I didn't want to just keep, you know, spinning, going around the same record of learning from people in the U.S. that had learned from the same people. So I decided I was going to, you know, spend a decade or so traveling around the world and living with remote tribes. I just um, flew down to Ecuador on a whim. I just bought a ticket and I was like, cool, I know Ecuador borders the Amazon. I'm going to find a way in. If you go far enough east in the in Ecuador, you eventually hit a wall of the Amazon. There's just no more towns. You can't go anymore. And it's just jungle. So I was like, I'm going to go to this random rainforest town and, and study English with a family and try to find my way deep into the Amazon to find a remote tribe. And so long story short, I found a guy that told me about a, a pilot that takes missionaries out into the jungle and drops them off with tribes. And so I, I tracked that pilot down. I didn't really have any help with that, but I found him online and, and wrote him an email and kind of pretended I was a Christian missionary and convinced him to take me uh, two hours over the jungle in his little plane. And uh, we finally, you know, it opens up and there's this tiny little airstrip in the middle of the jungle and he lands and it's in the middle of, you know, right near a tribe, the Warani tribe. And a bunch of them come out of the, the woods and uh, greet us. And, and he introduces me to uh, Kawitipe, uh, chief of the tribe. And he just said, hey, can this guy stay? And he's like, sure. And he throws my bags out of the plane. He's like, cool, I'll come get you in a couple of weeks and takes off. And uh, so I, I spent a lot of time with the Warani. Um, I ended up going back and traveling down river with one of them for about two months, visiting all the different um, villages of the Warani people as we kind of worked our way down the Amazon. And yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Like those types of experiences were great because these people were still out there hunting and gathering. And, you know, I would put a, a seven-year-old Warani kid up against, you know, Bear Grylls or any TV survivalist. Their abilities and, you know, their aim and their ability to hit a teeny songbird from like hundreds of feet away with a blow dart was just incredible, like otherworldly incredible, like their, their survival skills, you know, would blow away anybody, myself included. I probably have this, the, the survival skills of like a seven-year-old. I just realized that that's the way to do it. And so I traveled to, lived with a shaman in a, a thatched hut in Indonesia on this island off of uh, Sumatra. And then I went to Papua New Guinea for a bit and I hunted with Aborigines in Australia. And uh, like I said, the Tarahumara in Mexico, deep in the bottom of Copper Canyon, 
Um, and I just really wanted to find this, um, people living the lifestyle that I was, um, kind of accustomed to, you know, having lived in the woods for a year and, and yeah, just amazing experience. Um, and you know, the, the survival skills that I had really opened doors with allowing them, getting those people to trust me because they felt like I was one of them rather than just some typical outsider. How did communication work? Um, most of the time I'd find somebody that like, so with the Warani, um, there was one kid from the Warani tribe that somehow was sponsored by the UN. Uh, his name is Menkai or Hilbert. His Hilberto is his, his Ecuadorian name. They would always have their Warani name and then sometimes have a Spanish name. And so he actually could speak broken Spanish. Um, so his broken Spanish and my broken Spanish would, he would translate for me and we would visit villages and stuff like that. But a lot of it was just sign language or just hanging out. You know, a lot of it wasn't necessarily direct, um, you know, talking, but we'd go hunt monkeys with blow guns or something. And I would learn just by watching. And, and I think they really respected that because most, you know, if there was, it's very rare, but if there was tourists coming in to these people's areas, um, you know, they weren't able to walk through the woods barefoot or rub sticks together to make fires. And when I could do that, they'd be like, oh, cool, you're one of us. Don't let Tom's laid back delivery of this story fool you into thinking these kinds of adventures are without danger. I mean, there's been times in survival where just things didn't go right and there just wasn't enough food on the landscape. And I've lost, you know, tons and tons of weight. And, you know, but it's, it's nothing, you know, super flashy. I think in a lot of my travels, you know, you can imagine that, Indigenous people are always surrounded by trouble, um, not from their own tribe, but there's oil prospectors and land. And there's, you know, in Mexico, we're with the Tarahumar, we're constantly running and hiding in the bushes from drug mafia groups that would come out there and, and uh, force the Tarahumar to, to grow marijuana um, or sneak it across the border. Sometimes the danger came from the environment, sometimes from crime syndicates, but sometimes from the indigenous people themselves. For example, Tom once spent some time with the Guarani tribe, who once had a pretty fearsome reputation. Yeah, the Guarani were the, uh, they were recorded as being the most homicidal culture ever recorded. So in their tribe, before contact, they had a 60% homicide rate. So 60% of members of the tribe would die by being murdered. Um, and the rest would like die from like snake bites or falling off a cliff or drowning or whatever. Um, and so nobody ever made it to adulthood in this tribe and they would, you talk to the old people and they're just like, Oh yeah, you'd just be sitting around the campfire. And all of a sudden a, a, a different part of your tribe would come out of the woods with spears and start spearing everybody. And, uh, this one guy, Minkai, he, um, everybody's called Minkai, but he, uh, you know, ran off when he was about 10 years old with a bunch of other little kids and they re- had to restart the tribe from just being like 13 year old kids because um, all their parents were killed. And so it was just like gang warfare is the way he described it. They kind of realized that that it wasn't a good strategy for survival of the tribe. At one point, they killed a couple of missionaries that came in to try to convert them in the 70s or 60s and became very famous because of that. Um, and then they were kind of converted and now are just like the most loving people. And so you can't sit anywhere without like Nobody would sit separate. Like, so if you're going to sit on a log, somebody sits next to you and puts their arm around you. And if it's 10 people on the log, they all have their arms around each other. And they're just the sweetest people. Um, and they just kind of describe it. Or they're like, yeah, we just didn't know. We just thought, you know, killing was what you did. Like, if somebody killed your brother, you'd go kill their brother, you know. And that's just the way it was. And we finally realized that that was, you know, 
not a good thing to do. <laughs> but they still sit around and talk about it where it'd be like this 80-year-old guy, Minkai, would just be like, oh, yeah, well, I killed her I killed her husband and her husband killed my brother, so we threw the kid in the grave. And, I mean, they have the craziest stories of, uh, you know, they're all basically mass murderers, but also the sweetest people you've ever met. And they don't, you know, they've kind of given up on all that sort of thing. That... I don't even know how to react to that. <laughs> no, that was the thing. You just had to accept it. And it was just like, well, if it's normal for you, I guess I can accept it. But you're also looking around at all these people that you're like, holy crap. I mean, like every dude here has killed people with spears. Like, it's crazy. How do you, if that's the way it's been and the way it's always been, how do you just stop that quick? You know, like you, you kind of said it kind of in this kind of uh, flip, sort of like, well, we just realized one day that's not good for the tribe. But <laughs> I mean. That's a pretty big change. That's a weird thing to put the brakes on. Yeah, just to immediately be able to make that stop. I don't know. You know, it, it's interesting. There's a lot on this because the, the so some missionaries very naively were like, we're going to go fly in and land in a little biplane on the river and then convert this tribe that we just discovered was out there. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, how scary is that to have some people fly in on a plane like that you've never seen. And so. Actually, Minkai, the old guy I was just telling you about, was one of the guys that killed these people. And so very quickly, because they were on oil land in Ecuador, the government was like, cool, this is our excuse to wipe out the Warani tribe. So they started sending in their military to kill the Warani because of this, the fact that they killed some Americans. And so the wives, the wives of the missionaries within like a couple days packed up all their stuff and moved their families out into the tribe to protect them from the military because they just after their husbands had been killed like days after. And because it was all women, the Warani were like, okay, these aren't, you know, these people aren't a threat. They're women and children. We're going to accept them. And so these um, American women that were wives of missionaries came out and actually basically saved, stopped the military from, from killing all the Warani. And then the Warani kind of fell in love with them as a family members, because if you, basically if you kill somebody, their children become your children. So Minkai became grandfather to this woman who brought her children into the jungle. What was the most uncertain, scariest, death-defying experience you've had since you've been doing this kind of thing? When I first went to one of the villages with the Warani, it was a little closer to where the um, to where the oil was, and so it was a little bit more of. It wasn't deep Amazon where everybody was naked and hunting gathering, but um, it was kind of a half and half mix. And I walked up on this guy and he was coming back with a monkey over his shoulder. And I just got there and he's telling me like, oh, yeah, you know, just on this trail, just the other day, I killed a witch. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, you killed a witch. And he said, well, yeah, you know, like she was coming down the trail and I hid right behind this bush and she came in and, and I shot her. And then we all burned her body in the middle of the village. And I'm like, holy shit, what? And I said, well, how do you, how did you know she was a witch? And he just said, well, but weird things kept happening around her. So we all just knew. And I was like, okay, that seems pretty vague. And so literally that night, um, the guy I was, I was uh, hiking with the UN kid that could speak Spanish went out and killed this little animal. And we were sitting around a fire eating it. And somebody came up and I could tell, even though it was in Morani by the tone, I could tell something crazy happened. And all of a sudden he looks at me and he's like, hey, do you want to go see a body at the side of the trail, just up the trail? And I'm like, uh, I guess so. And anyway, there was this young kid, he was probably 15, um, and he had 
he had actually, we didn't know at the time, but he had poisoned himself with the fish poison and committed suicide. And, but at the time, nobody had any idea what happened. And so, you know, they had this huge funeral. They wrap him in banana leaves and bring him into the middle of the village and everybody just screaming and wailing for like 12 hours throughout the night. And I'm just sitting in the distance thinking like, oh God, like how long is it going to take before they're like, hey, this is the first, you know, outside Western person that's been in this village in ages. And all of a sudden, one of our kids just drops dead for no reason, you know, just down the trail from him. You know, and so I'm sitting there thinking like, all of a sudden I'm going to be a witch and everybody's going to come and <laughs> come and get, you know, it just takes one person to have this idea. <laughs> they're all going to turn and start running at my hut. And the uh, morning comes and I kind of slept with one eye open and I finally... You know, uh, Minkai is like, hey, do you want to go see the body? And I'm like, I guess so. You know, and so we start walking up towards the middle of the village and he's ahead of me by ways. And then he talked to a couple of people and just comes running back and he's like, grab your stuff. We have to go. We have to go. Grab your stuff. Throw it in the canoe. <laughs> and I never really understood what was going on. And later he tried to just brush it off if it was no big deal and it was totally fine. But I, I have to imagine that, that he got wind of something like that and it was just time to go. Um, and so we just ditched out on the village and went down to the next one down river. And so there are little brushes with death like that. Um, and, and, and other ones where there was this hostile tribe nearby that we, on, we inadvertently walked into their territory and, and found two cross spears across the trail. And, uh, that was basically the sign to say, like, we see you. If you pass these spears, you're, you know, you're done for. And so we just hightailed it back to camp as quick as humanly possible. Um, and, you know, evaded it all, but it's, it's always worked out so far. So I, I feel incredibly lucky in that sense, um, where I've had friends that it didn't work out for, unfortunately. And, and, uh, yeah, definitely pushed it a little too far sometimes. Tom will admit pushing his luck and thus far he has been lucky, but this wasn't the case for one fellow adventurer. It's easy to forget. Sometimes there are risks involved in this lifestyle Tom has always known this, but nothing can prepare you for when one of your friends pays the ultimate price for their taste for adventure and for their curiosity. My friend Justin, um, who I studied survival with from way back when I was 22 or something like that, and he was a little bit younger, he was doing the same thing, the thing we're talking about of like, I'm going to travel the world and go, uh, you know, he literally lived with a Thai family to study kickboxing for five years, and he, he lived in the mountains in Nepal for a long time. He was out in India, living in a cave, and this Baba yogi guy would come up to his cave occasionally out of nowhere and bring him some tea, and um, invited him to go way up into the mountains. And so Justin went with this guy, and he, he writes an Instagram post that's very, like, yeah, I don't know about this guy. He seems really sketchy and I don't really trust him, but he's invited me to go up and it seems like a great adventure. I'm going to go way up into the mountains where the old yogis used to meditate. The following is an excerpt from Justin's Instagram post. Nagababas are naked warriors who live mostly alone in the Himalayas and devote their lives to Shiva. Some of them are reported to go month without food, living on pure life energy and hashish. I've been cold and wet a lot recently, feeling malnourished and weak already, and I'm a little nervous that this might be the hardest thing I've ever done. The nearest village is at least two days' walk, so if I get sick, hurt, or starve, it's going to be a tough solo trip out. He speaks no English, 
and I'm not sure why I was invited. He can't teach me any ancient doctrine or explain anything, and I'm not a guru worshipper. He must know this by now. My back is in bad shape, broken when I was 19, and cave mountain life has recently put me in a state of constant discomfort. I can't even sit still for a few minutes without pain. Maybe Baba life will be good for me. I should return mid-September or so. If I'm not back by then, don't look for me. Also, this sadhu has cut his penis off, in full renunciation of lust. I don't know how to casually drop that bomb, but I find it both unsettling and impressively dedicated. He didn't ever fully come back, and yet this yogi guy did, and the yogi guy had all these crazy stories, and so we went out there to search for him. In the meantime, they arrested the yogi, and while we're out there searching for him, the yogi supposedly committed suicide while he was in prison, and you know, the only person that had any real idea where it, whatever happened to Justin suddenly was, was, had hung himself from his own scarf from a five foot gate in the prison cell, um, which I imagine is hard to do. So it's a huge mystery, but yeah, we ended, we ended up going out there and tracking. We found some of his belongings next to a cliff um, that might've indicated that he went off the cliff because there was a lot of broken branches going down the cliff. Justin and I were, in a lot of ways competing of like who can do the crazier thing in the world, who can go to the most remote place and do this and that. And I think he, because of that, not because of our competition, but because he was pushing himself, um, just pushed himself a little too far. And in fact, he had come to the same Island survival class. I think it was two years before yours. Do things like that make you reconsider, make you reconsider future plans? Yeah. I mean, I used to go out with zero contact, no cell phone, no, or, you know, no sat phone, no, you know, anything. Um, and just disappear for months, you know, into the Amazon and just be like, well, <laughs> you know, if somebody kills me, like that's the end of it and nobody's ever going to know. And I think I always thought that I had some sort of like, I mean, I don't believe in these things, but some sort of guardian angel kind of vibe to it of like, yeah, it's just, you know, we're all slightly narcissistic. So I just thought like, it won't happen to me kind of feeling of like, it always has worked out for me in the past. So it's always going to work out. And then, you know, when somebody like Justin, who is an amazing, incredible human being and incredibly fit and, and just that guy that was talented at everything he ever did, didn't come back. It kind of made me be like, wow, like shit. Like I just, I always had this like subconscious feeling that I was always going to be okay. And, um, when he wasn't, it made me be like, you know what? I'm no different than him. Like this can happen to, to me as well. And I need to stop taking so many chances. A lot has been said and debated about these poor souls who strike out for the wilderness, never to return. Chris McCandless, a smart and overly optimistic young man from a well-to-do family, burned his cash and his car and eventually wound up starving to death in the Alaskan wilderness. The abandoned bus that was his shelter and then his tomb became such a popular spot for pilgrimage that the state government finally had to airlift the attractive hazard out of the wilderness, lest more people follow his example to an early grave. He was an object of fascination and controversy, with some people dismissing him as a fool, while others admired his willpower to follow his dream of reconnecting to a simpler, more fulfilling existence. I think both of these views miss the point. Sure, McCandless was certainly ill-prepared for wilderness survival, but who can fault him 
for the splendid notion that took possession of him, to live more simply and more honestly. I think Chris's truly fatal error was in thinking he could do it alone, that he didn't understand what most post-industrial men don't seem to understand, that what got us to this point as a successful primate was each other. And this turned out to be my experience when I took Tom's Island survival class with nine other guys between ages 52 and 16, all from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. The most transformative aspect of the experience was not the knowledge and skills Tom and Matt were passing on. It was the experience of disconnecting from all electronic devices, slowing down, and sitting down with a bunch of other homo sapiens while we worked on our calabash bowls or pottery or fish spears and just talking. You see this in every different culture that I've been a part of. It's like, oh my God, Tonga. It was like, you know, the Polynesians would pound the bark to make their cloth. And it was just every single day. It was just all the women would get together in a circle and pound cloth and just talk, you know, and it was hilarious and they crack each other up. And I think that's one of the most universal um, things that they have. And I think in a way, that's why social media is so incredibly successful is that you know, in a different way, but it helps trigger that, that, um, genetic part of ourselves that is craving that part of like sitting around with a bunch of people and telling jokes and commenting on what each other is saying and having that sense of community that I think because, uh, you know, especially in America, we, like we said, we're very, we're proud to be isolated and we build these houses where it's only our family and nobody else is over. And you don't have that same sense of community. We've kind of like taken that out, and I think people don't realize how much they really miss that. Well, we've all been through a bit of a crisis recently. Yeah, we certainly have. And we were very, very lucky to spend a lot of time together during the pandemic. Yeah. And if it weren't for a a virus that made us all put down our, stop our busy lives, get off the treadmill for a second, the rat race, you know what I mean? And sit, really forced people to sit and, right. and sit still for a minute. What was your experience like? Um, I mean, that, 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 that sense of going from, you know, the, the pre in contrast to the post. I actually, uh, I needed to keep going. I, 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 I don't think I, I was admitting to myself how much I was freaked out hmm. um, when, the, when the virus was spreading. And so that project of, that I started of building the, the enclosed garden, I really needed that as much for my mental well-being as, as <laughs> putting food on the table. Um, yeah, I, I, it, but, it, but it was also great to have a village here of our friends sort of banding together and getting through it together and having large meals together. That was really nice. Right. And having the busy work of like cooking together, Mm -hmm. it felt very strange to, uh, and we did, I remember it very clearly. We, I've never seen, I certainly never practiced daily gratitude with a group of people like that until then. Cause we, we knew that we were lucky. We knew that we were in a, safe place and we knew that we had each other um 
And if it weren't for the pandemic, none of that would have ever happened. You know, it was, it was, I mean, talk about a mixed everything. Mm. It was, you know, about as, uh, uh, extreme and as blessing and curses as anything could ever be. Uh, but yeah, staying busy now, now I remember clearly, I do remember you were pretty freaked out and it was putting out bad vibes. (laughs) And I was like, you need a project. We need to get together and do something together as friends uh, something to keep our hands busy, something that would keep our mind off of it, right? And I knew you wanted to build a garden. I said, you should be able to start the garden now. That's proactive. And instead of helping you with it, I just watched you do it. <laughs> but you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little, it was a little freaky, um, you know, for the first time in our lives that, 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 um, that thought experiment we've all done, uh, which is like, what if things start, stop working? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would be your game plan when you're suddenly talking about that possibly for real? Like, what if the supply lines go down? Uh, was, uh, I, I never thought that I, I never thought I'd be in that situation where we're honestly considering things, everything stopping, mm-hmm. just stopping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember it well. I think we all do, but I think, you know, turns out that thing basically kept creaking along mm-hmm. supply wise. Uh, but you're right. It, it, it forced the experiment that we've always kept in the back of the what if mm-hmm. that we were never, ever, ever going to really make a go at unless something made us do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh- survival is an act of creativity. (laughs) I get your point. People are going to look back on that and say like, wow, like I had an entire year to hang out in the house with the kids. Like that's something that without that, I never would have been able to do or with my spouse or with, you know, my friends or whatever, you know, it's like the feeling of community, you know, at my house, we built a fire pit and chairs. I made all these um, Adirondack chairs out of uh, wine barrels and, you know, created a spot where we, the entire group of us could get together and hang out outside. And the sense of community that we got back because we weren't able to do all the things that we normally would do um, is incredible, you know, and it, it, it sucked, you know, and, yeah, and I understand that, that, like you said, the tragedy of it all. Um, but in a way, it kind of started giving people that feeling of community again you know, it all just felt super familiar. It just felt like the, the environment that I've spent a lot of my life us uh, um, in. Another thing is, you know, I have so many survival nature hobbies that for me, it was like, oh, cool. Like, you know, leave me alone with a bunch of flint napping rocks and clay that I can, I can make into pottery and, and basket material and everything else. And so I would just be outside working on lots of different projects. And that was also a fun thing that, you know, friends could come over and do that sort of stuff with me. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I kind of made it through quarantine really well because of the, the skills that I've acquired were really good again about like keeping yourself busy. You know, the combination of those two things is really what community is all about is like, you know, with working in a tribe, it's really just sitting around with your friends talking shit and like making the spears or making the baskets or making whatever you need. Um, you're always doing your work around other people that are friends. Mm-hmm. 
doing your work around other people that are friends. I think it's about as succinct an explanation for survival I've ever heard. This is how we evolved, and this is what we long to return to, but we've caught ourselves in a technology trap that prevents us from pursuing these simple pleasures except on weekends and holidays. We may experience it every now and then and vicariously through reality TV shows or fishing and hunting trips with friends, but it's something we need to carry with us always and never ever lose sight of. Our happiness and survival is inextricably linked to everyone else's because the key to our survival is each other. The Well is written, produced, and recorded by Anson Mount and Brandon Edgens. Theme music written and performed by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode written and performed by Brandon Edgens. Special thanks to Tom McElroy for sitting down and talking with me and for earlier taking me out into the jungle and taking care of me. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.